From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Large human-caused wildfires are becoming common, but pinpointing exactly how they started is a mystery in Colorado. Was it a campfire? Maybe a stray bullet? Or arson? Especially if you have loss of life, oh yeah, that's a serious crime. And uh, there needs to be consequences and people held accountable for that. Today, a special CPR News investigation with Ben Marcus. Then, the transition from military life to civilian life can be challenging, even stigmatizing, especially in rural parts of the state. If I have a red truck and I live in Phillips County and someone sees my red truck parked at the local therapist's office, all of a sudden the entire town knows that something is going wrong in my life. Operation Veteran Strong may change that. Plus, on this Veterans Day, preserving stories of World War II. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. The biggest wildfires in Colorado have cost lives and caused millions of dollars in damage, yet no one knows specifically how they started. It means authorities can't effectively change policies to try to prevent new wildfires. CPR News analyzed 18 years of federal wildfire data, and today we present a special investigation into the findings. Here's CPR investigative reporter Ben Marcus. Colton McDonald said that his trips deep into the Colorado backcountry are less about adventure and more about solitude. I have, for a couple of years, been really delving into backpacking, just hiking as much as I can. Really fell in love with the mountains. On August 13th, 2020, a scorching hot and dry day, he ventured out of his home in the suburbs of Loveland for what was supposed to be his longest trip yet, 10 days solo. He parks at the Blue Lake Trailhead, near Cameron Peak. It's a little more than an hour and a half west of Fort Collins. Everything is going according to plan. And so I remember being like, yes, okay, my timing's good. And made it up pretty far, up Blue Lake Trail, maybe a mile or two before seeing anybody. And already to me that was, you know, again, what I was sort of seeking out there. And it's it's gorgeous up there. Um, you get above tree line and there's some nice big flat kind of hills. Um, And the view down at the lake was incredible. At around 1 p.m. on the first day of this 10-day trip, the silence is broken by what McDonald says was the crack of a gunshot. He says he's far enough into the wilderness that he's sure it isn't a car backfiring. Then he sees smoke in the distance behind him. But at first I just thought, oh, there's somebody camping out there. They got their fire going. But I'm kind of hanging out and I'm watching it. And you can see distinctive kind of plumes, uh, you know, expanding. And I started thinking, man, that's a big fire. The Cameron Peak fire would become the largest fire in Colorado's recorded history. Of course, at the time, he doesn't know that. So he keeps hiking north, away from where he thinks the fire started. But as he goes deeper into the wilderness, 
He sees some ominous signs. I started to kind of notice a lot of wildlife. I mean, every single morning I'd wake up and there would be herds of sheep and elk and deer that I would spook and they would move on down the trail and just so many birds, you know, more than I'd seen all that season. And I couldn't help wonder, like, is all this wildlife also moving in the same direction that I am? Is it all getting spooked up this way? After a few days of hiking, he realizes he's stuck out there. Fortunately, he recently added a GPS to his bag, which has an SOS button. He pauses for a moment, though, like, am I really going to do this? But there's no choice. He pushes the button, the GPS lights up and beeps at him. In a matter of hours, he's airlifted to safety. It's a heck of a story. McDonald would go on to tell it to a local newspaper, to TV stations. He even called an investigative tip line to try to report what he had seen. The guy isn't exactly hard to find. But a year after the fire started, no one who's responsible for figuring out the cause of the fire, no one with an interest in stopping future fires has ever contacted him. No one has talked to this supposed eyewitness to try to piece together what happened. The Cameron Peak Fire, burning to the west of Fort Collins, has now burned nearly 200,000 acres. Colorado is no stranger to wildfires, but we've never had a year like this. You need to evacuate out of your area and come out immediately. And the cause of the Cameron Peak Fire remains unsolved, beyond the fact that it was started by a person, somehow. Our own investigation has found that's true of so many of the most destructive fires in Colorado's history. And McDonald's first-hand experience has him wondering, is anyone really trying to figure it out? I'm Ben Marcus, an investigative reporter, and this is a CPR News special. Across the U.S., about nine out of every ten wildfires are started by people. Cutting back that number would save lives, save homes, save taxpayer money, along with billions of dollars in insurance payouts and premiums. We now live in an era of climate change, forest mismanagement, and population growth. That's made massive wildfires common. But we found that in more than half of the large human-started wildfires in Colorado— There's no known cause, no arrests, leaving little ability to prevent the next big destructive fire from starting in the first place. We found that no other state in the West has a higher percentage of unsolved wildfires than Colorado, where the cause is listed as unknown or the data is missing. This all slowly set in for Colton McDonald in the months after his rescue from the woods. Initially, after the airlift, he's relieved to be safe. But then... I'm like, geez, like now the danger's over, but now like the new societal danger is there of like, well, what what repercussions does this have? You think surely there's going to be interrogations, some paperwork. He'll explain what he saw out in the woods. So when someone from the sheriff's office approaches him after the helicopter ride, it makes sense. At first... And we're chatting, and uh, he's like, do you have a Colorado State fishing license? Yeah, yeah. Do you you happen to have it on you? Oh, yeah. And I dig through my bag, and I get it. And he just writes the numbers down. I'm like, is that all you need? He's like, yeah. McDonald says they just wanted to see that he had paid the 25 cents into the state search and rescue fund. But I'm like, that is the best quarter I have ever spent in my life. 
I will get one of these forever. That is so worth it. But that's it. On this August day a year ago, all the authorities want to know is if McDonald has paid for his rescue. The experience makes him existential about it all. Because I started being invested in the wildfire phenomena. I mean, uh, tracking, you know, is this a growing phenomena as we experience our evolving climate? Is this, you know, predominantly human oriented? You know, what's really going on here? And then also what's being done about it all. The disasters still haunt many Coloradans. East Troublesome, Waldo Canyon, Black Forest, Missionary Ridge almost 20 years ago. These fires combined cost seven lives, almost $2 billion in damages. They destroyed more than a thousand homes. Hundreds of millions of dollars spent fighting them. They're all unsolved. Deep in the Four Corners region of Colorado is Montezuma County. The sheriff there is a guy named Steve Nellen. He is serious about wildfire investigation because he's seen the damage that can be done. Because it puts lives in jeopardy, it does. For not only the firefighters, but what about the forest visitors? Uh, it's not just the damage to the resources that we have. It's lives are at stake. So, uh, yeah, being responsible with fire is just the same as being responsible with a firearm. About a decade ago, the Weber fire burned 10,000 acres in his county, caused $5 million in damages. 150 people were displaced by evacuations. Working with the Federal Bureau of Land Management, Nellen's agency helped to figure out it was arson. A juvenile lit a pile of leaves on fire. And it's one of the rare times an arson was identified as the cause of a wildfire in Colorado. Nellen's success could be in part because he's unusual. He invests some of the small resources he has into wildfire investigations. He has one deputy with training, and he hopes to have another trained up soon. Most county sheriffs that we talk to have none. We just want answers just like everybody else. I do. I want to know how it started and why, and who's responsible for that. That's so very, very important. It really is. And especially if you have loss of life, Oh, yeah, that's a serious crime. And uh, there needs to be consequences and people held accountable for that. I showed him the data that Colorado leads the West in the number of unsolved fires. His eyes widened. Well, that's terrible to see that we have so many that they have not found uh, the origin or the cause. Many counties without investigators said that they would ask the state for help. But we found that Colorado's state-level resources are severely limited. There are only about six state wildfire investigators. Utah has double the number of state investigators, and they have agreements with locals to aid in investigations. Colorado can only help when asked. Utah pinpoints the ignition sources for a much higher percentage of their wildfires than any state in the West, according to our analysis. Imagine how useful that is. If it was a car crash, there would be an investigation, and over time, patterns would emerge. A car part is defective, or an intersection is poorly designed. 
Without that data, we'd never know what the root problem is. The same thing with fires. There are options for prevention, but too little information to figure out what they are. Sheriff Nellen says Colorado better catch up. Especially with the drought seasons that we've had in Colorado over just the past seven years, okay? That is so very important to be able to do that. Everybody's resources are limited. However, you know, we should be able to prepare for it and be able to accomplish the mission. It's not as if Colorado officials haven't recognized the threat. The state has poured huge sums into suppression over the last 10 years, fighting the fires with air tankers and helicopters. That was the most urgent need, when homes and lives and even cities are threatened. But research shows preventing fire starts in the first place can save huge amounts of taxpayer money. Humans can start wildfires in so many different ways. A car chain drags on the ground and sparks. A campfire isn't put out properly. Someone intentionally lights the woods on fire. Or a bullet sparks off a rock. Target shooting was banned in Arizona in one of their national forests after a rash of fires started by rifle rounds. Had the investigations been inconclusive, authorities wouldn't even know what to ban. It's not just about finding the people directly guilty for the fire. Nine one one, where's your emergency? Colton McDonald was still trying to get his story to investigators of how he thinks he witnessed the start of the Cameron Peak fire when another fire broke out a county over. On October 14th, just after noon, this call came into the Grand County Sheriff Dispatch. Um, I was going to report a, uh, a fire in the forest. Okay, where at? It's north of Kremlin uh, in the National Forest. It took just a week for the East Troublesome Fire to explode. We have planned for the worst. This is the worst of the worst of the worst. Those are the words the sheriff of Grand County used to describe our current fire situation. Winds picked up and pushed the fire towards Grand Lake, a picturesque town on the shore of Colorado's largest natural lake. The sheriff ordered the evacuation of the whole town. This fire has moved more in the last two hours than it has the entire time. So we have no idea right now what's going to happen. It was a stunning overnight development. About 400 miles away near Salt Lake City, Glenn Hillman got a call. It was his parents. They lived just north of Grand Lake. His dad had always wanted to retire to the mountains. Now he was being consumed by them. And at that point, my parents were already hunkered down in their house. There was no way to get in or out at that point. And they called me on the phone and explained that the fire was over the entire fields. They said, as far as I could see, and the home up here on this hill is the Richmond home. They said, the Richmond's home's on fire. We think we're okay, but the fields are ablaze. And my dad said, and the barn's on fire. And this is the location of the barn, or was the location of the barn. Glenn recalls it today as he overlooks the sprawling family property, right on the edge of Rocky Mountain National Park but completely consumed everything. And when I mean everything, the entire foundations had to be removed for the barn and the house. There was nothing left. It took everything. My dad was a gun collector. He must have had 20 rifles. We couldn't even find a single barrel because of the heat and how hot it had burned. The view of the surrounding mountains is still beautiful. But turn to the west, and there's blackened trees. A charred fireplace is all that remains of a neighbor's home. 
The Hillmans, Glenn's parents, both in their 80s, died of asphyxiation in the basement of the house before it was destroyed by the flames. Glenn somehow stays positive about it all, citing his faith and that someday they'll be together again. That, along with the fact that, you know, there's a lot of work to do to honor my parents, uh, has kept me from getting too depressed or getting too um, discouraged over the whole thing. And quite honestly, how many people have an opportunity to leave this world together with... My mom and dad were married 68 years and would never, ever have wanted to leave one another behind. He says his parents were found in the basement, arm in arm. A series of decisions led to their deaths. Poorly managed forests were thick with trees. They dried out due to climate change. Then someone, we still don't know who, sparked the fire, whether by accident or arson. All we know officially is that it was somehow sparked by humans. Thoroughly investigating a wildfire is not easy work. It can mean hiking to remote locations, crawling around on hands and knees to find matches or shell casings or pieces of a firework, and the evidence can get burned up or trampled by firefighters. But the fire that killed Glenn's parents was not just any fire. It cost more in insured losses than any fire in state history. If it can't be solved, what hope is there that any fire can? As we started to do basic reporting around the cause of East Troublesome, we found potentially serious missteps by authorities. Experts told us that these are rooted in long-standing problems, around the lack of experienced investigators and an overall sense of urgency. The result is some fires get only a cursory investigation. By the time the East Troublesome fire broke out last October, the U.S. Forest Service was down to its last available investigator in Colorado. It had been an unusually intense and long fire season. We were, we were doing the best we can, and every fire got, got its attention, the proper attention to be investigated. Patrick Brown is the investigation supervisor for the Forest Service in Colorado. But the proper attention he describes apparently didn't include getting the dispatch tapes from the start of the East Troublesome fire or talking to the man who first called 911 to report it, the tape you heard earlier. Um, I was going to report a fire in the forest. That means in both of last year's mega fires near Rocky Mountain National Park, people who appear to be key witnesses weren't interviewed. Brown said that isn't necessarily because of a shortage of investigators. He said the information may not always be relevant, or there could be other ways for his investigators to get it. Well, they probably, as far as trying to get everything that was said, we will look at everything that, that's out there, find out who's the reporting party, and start following everything down. As far as a decision for the investigator to make, what is, in their opinion, is going to be helpful and what isn't, after a while you can get overloaded with so much information that you have to be a little more selective in that. But the explanation doesn't square with what other Forest Service employees, past and present, have said about the agency's approach. Like Andrew Prize, 
He's a special agent for the Forest Service in Colorado. And last year, in the aftermath of the historic fires, he told local TV station 9 News how the Forest Service pursues leads in a way that's, quote, systematic and thorough. You listen to eyewitness accounts. You listen to dispatch logs. You listen to the weather. The Forest Service wouldn't let us talk to investigators on Cameron Peak and East Troublesome, saying it would, quote, jeopardize the integrity of the investigations which they said are still ongoing, officially. But a former Forest Service investigator named Lucas Wolf, who's not involved in these particular cases, says it's a best practice to talk to those who say they were on the scene. So yes, that is somebody I would want to talk to. You know, at the very least, you want to talk to somebody like this, and then you can make the determination as an investigator, well, uh, I think this guy's just full of crap, or, hey, wow, you know, he's got some, man, that's, that's some really good information that I did not know about. The fact that there was only one person available to investigate East Troublesome speaks to what he says is a bigger problem, not just in Colorado. He says there simply are not enough investigators overall in the Forest Service, especially as fire seasons become longer and more intense, and the number of human-caused fires rises. There isn't enough training or mentoring. The result, as Wolf describes it, is that some investigations are superficial. It wasn't enough, you know, for somebody to show up and look at it and be like, oh, I, I looked at it, um, you know, nothing, you know, I didn't find any cause, you know, about, you know, it's like, well, how much, you know, time did you actually spend? Wolf says there's a term for this even, windshield investigations. You know, you kind of pull up, look at it. If it's not super obvious, then, you know, I'll, I'll cut an incident report and, you know, yeah, I looked at it, but there's times where, you know, there's fires where investigators I know, nobody ever showed up. Wolf says mainly because there are so many fires. Colorado alone is averaging about 4,000 wildfires a year now. But to Sheriff Nellen, none of that is an excuse. His decades of investigative experience have taught him the first eyewitnesses should have been interviewed. If that happened here, I would be really embarrassed. Well, I couldn't, I wouldn't let it out. The time, the money, the expertise, it's all focused on putting out the wildfires. I've covered several of these fires as they're happening. All the TV cameras are there, us reporters with our notebooks talking to evacuees, hanging on every word of the first responders trying to keep the flames away from people's houses. It can cost more than $100 million to fight just one fire as it happens. And then it ends. Our team has been with you since the moment this fire got out of hand, and they're going to be with you until the moment it is under control. We walk away. We come back to celebrate the resilience of the survivors, but very few people stop to ask, could how this have started been prevented? That's what Colton McDonald has come to believe. Since he was rescued from the Cameron Peak fire, He's educated himself about how wildfires don't have to be the big mystery they are here in Colorado. And then you see stories coming out of like California and they have a, a huge record-breaking fire there and they track this down to a T immediately. And I did find it very strange that you have the largest fire in Colorado's history, very damaging to a lot of people's lives and still damaging. I mean, you still have mudslides and water quality impacts and, and all of this going on. And I'm, I was right there. And then to not have somebody be like, hey, so you were right there, what can you tell us? Uh, 
was, yeah, very strange. The Forest Service denied our request for a follow-up interview, but they did ask us to give them Colton McDonald's cell phone number so they could finally interview him. Two weeks later, he still hadn't heard from investigators. The story was reported by Veronica Penny and me, Ben Marcus. It's edited by Chuck Murphy and Rachel Estabrook. Pedro Lumbrano did the mixing and sound design with an assist from Luis Antonio Perez. It was overseen by Kevin Dale. And thank you to CPR climate team reporter Sam Brash as well for his contributions to that report. You can find additional data and details about this special CPR news investigation at CPR.org. I'm Nathan Heffel. When we come back, new help for veterans focused on being well. A more reliable CPR stream on your phone. An easy way to tell CPR what you're thinking. Better browsing. These are just a few of the improvements to the CPR app. If you already use the app, you'll need to update to the new version on your phone or tablet. And get the latest from CPR News, CPR Classical, and Indy 1023. Everywhere you go. The new CPR app. Search for Colorado Public Radio in the Apple App Store or in Google Play. The transition from military life back to civilian life can be a challenge for veterans. It can be lonely and filled with stigma, especially in rural areas. Dealing with other people, I, I got frustrated easily. I still, you know, had a lot of trouble sleeping. It got to the point where I was almost impossible to deal with. Oftentimes in the military, you know, it's that go-it-alone attitude. I felt that I was the only one until I started connecting with other veterans. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people. Just as you would take care of your weapon or take care of your vehicle, your mission now is to take care of yourself. For the guys who couldn't come back, you owe it to them because they're not here with their families. And so you owe it to them to live well. The Voices of Veterans. That audio from Operation Veterans Strong, a new pilot program in partnership with the state of Colorado, created with veterans for veterans. Nathan Demers is a clinical psychologist with Grit Digital Health based in Denver. He helped create this resource. Jeremy Kirkpatrick is a veteran service officer in Phillips County in Northeast Colorado. Welcome both of you to the program. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So Jeremy, let's start with you. Uh, Can you give us a brief description of what your day looks like when you're working with veterans? Well, it just depends on the day. Um, as a veteran service officer, we have a range of duties at our disposal. We have tons of tools and things to use within the county and as well as the state resources. But um, it could be a claim for disability or it could be pension. It could be um, some help with a deed or burial benefits. It could also go all the way as far as to help just set up an appointment with their health provider and get things taken care of on that end. But Wherever there's a need, a VSO can do it. And you work in Phillips County. Uh, Holyoke is the county seat there. Around 270 veterans live in Phillips County, according to the latest census. And are the veterans there facing things, let's say, differently than than, than other places, maybe uh, because of their isolation? I, I could definitely say that it's, it's different. Um, I'm not a psychologist, but I definitely can say that it's a... a struggle that's unique all in itself. And I'm also thinking 
you know, in terms of mental health, uh, being in rural areas, I'm assuming it may be an hour, a couple hours to, let's say, get to a VA or, or someone uh, who could help a veteran uh, that might need it. Are you seeing that as well? And, and, and do you have resources to, to help with that? That is definitely um, a problem with us out here. We, we do have some restrictions and COVID has not been easy. Um, we, we lost our mobile health clinic in Sterling area, which is about 30 miles to the east of us or to the west of us. And, and that was the closest. And now our next resource, well, other than Centennial, which is outside the VA, we, we have Cheyenne VA Healthcare Center, which is three hours in Wyoming. And we also have um, Denver, which is about two and a half to three hours in that direction as well. So we're, we're kind of smack dab in the middle of nowhere when it comes to resources for medical care. But uh, you definitely point out a very good point with the mental health um, being a significant hindrance for us to get actual care for that. I want to continue this point about rural veterans and mental health here in just a bit. But right now, Nathan Demers, let's talk about what Operation Veteran Strong is and how it could be a vital tool for VSOs like Jeremy and for veterans across Colorado. So Operation Veteran Strong is the first of its kind, to the best of our knowledge, that is a 24-7, 365 digital tool where veterans can go to be connected with the best national, state, as well as local resources to help support their mental health and well-being needs, largely to overcome a lot of the challenges that Jeremy just pointed out. It is free, open, accessible, and completely confidential for all users. And very important to note, while it's made for veterans, we also made an explicit effort to make it available to community members, family members, anyone who wants to support a veteran in their life. So you can go to operationveteranstrong.org, create a free account, and right away the site already starts to personalize and ask questions about what you want to work on, whether that's finances, finding transportation, as Jeremy was talking about getting to appointments, or dive into some tougher mental health topics like explore resources to cope with depression, PTSD, or something much lighter like simply connecting with other veterans, which we know can be very difficult in rural areas where there's large spaces and significant isolation at times. And Jeremy, you're offering Operation Veteran Strong as a resource to your veterans. In real life, how is that playing out? Um, well, just like anything, the word of mouth has to start, and out here especially, it takes some some severe working to get into the click, so to speak, of um, small town mm. life. But so far, um, I've seen a lot of my veterans love the fact that they can get feedback relatively quickly. They they are looking for a way to kind of glue it all together. I have tons of resources available that I can go online and look for. Um, but a veteran just doesn't have the time. Usually they're either bogged down with work or something else, and they just need everything in one place. And I feel like that's kind of what Operation Veteran Strong is designed to do, is be that glue and then have a side door in mental health. I've used it personally to find out what's going on around my community as well as around the area. The the snap to a social gathering, whether it be coffee at the coffee shop or maybe a barbecue in the in the park, those kind of things can be put on there as well. And if you do it monthly, like our Any Is Too Many event in, in Fort Morgan or in Brush, we have the ability to meet at those locations and we need those meetings. That's, it, that's feeling belonging. That's the feeling of 
being part of something bigger than yourself. So, Nathan, was that community aspect essentially baked into Operation Veteran Strong during its development? That's correct. So one thing I have yet to mention is we actually designed this tool specifically for rural communities. And we did all our research right here in Colorado, a lot of it being done in the San Luis Valley, for those who are familiar with it. One thing that became so clear in rural communities, going back to what Jeremy was sharing about rural life and isolation, we held focus groups of, you know, a handful of veterans. And in doing so, for many of these veterans who have been living in the San Luis Valley for between, let me remember, about two years all the way up through 20 years was our longest veteran living in the community, several had never met another veteran in their local community. And to me, that's just heartbreaking. And this is one aspect of what the site is trying to overcome, is really customizing it to local communities. So for example, in the San Luis Valley, every Tuesday morning at the local museum, they have a veterans coffee hour. But there's no website or way to necessarily find out about that unless you're sort of in the know. So making this site, working with people like Jeremy to learn about all these very unique local events, featuring them in the site, and then allowing veterans to find and connect with those supports is one aspect that is just essential to this tool. And I'll point out that Operation Veteran Strong is is built kind of off other resources that you've been a part of, including mantherapy.org and similar things for students at, at CSU, I believe, as well as programs for first responders, right? It is. So it's actually a really rich story and a great Colorado-based story, but all of this work actually stemmed from a website called mantherapy.org, which was developed by a purpose-driven marketing agency here in Colorado. And the state back in 2012, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, wanted to address the high rates of suicide amongst working-aged men. And with that, our team made mantherapy.org, which is a really funny, creative, engaging website that helps men destigmatize mental health and reach out for support. And from this framework that mantherapy.org creates, uh, you move on to Operation Veteran Strong. And I want to ask, Jeremy, is there a mental health stigma in the veteran population in Phillips County uh, that you see uh, when you're working with veterans. Amen. Yeah, that's exactly the problem we have. And and it's not any different in rural. In fact, it gets, in my opinion, it gets worse. Um, In rural Colorado, we tend to stick away from what's going on in the cities because we enjoy our peace and solidarity out here. We enjoy having our friends number for the neighbor and, 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 five miles down the road that instead of um, next door. So it's, it's harder to push through that kind of small town environment with new information, let alone mental health. It's a very difficult topic. But you're finding Operation Veterans strong to, to have that, that effect for those veterans, to give them somewhere to go? Exactly. I, it's not directly talking with anyone else necessarily. I, I am not acting as a therapist or anything in that manner. I'm just a, a, a fellow veteran saying, if you need something, this can help you. And it's helped me. And I can be part of that integration to something that is their own. They can do it themselves. It's their own at their own pace. Nathan, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, well, first off, I totally agree. And our research insights really support that. So first off, and having worked for about a decade in rural places, I lived in Montana and then doing a lot of this research, 
one thing we know is that stigma, unfortunately, is alive and well. And one thing we, we talk about is, quote unquote, the red truck problem. If I have a red truck and I live in Phillips County and someone sees my red truck parked at the local therapist's office, all of a sudden the entire town knows that something is going wrong in my life, or again, that's the stigma talking, requiring mm. me to seek care of a therapist. So with that, that stigma is alive and well, and we very intentionally made a confidential digital tool so that folks can explore it on their own with no strings attached. Whether I want to, again, just look for some quick financial resources or find new ways to connect with another veteran, or I want to look up something, again, more significant, like how to cope with substance use, how to work through relationship challenges with my partner, again, I can do that all confidentially and anonymously and find the resources to best support me in that moment. Jeremy, uh, this is a pilot program which both the state and the Veterans Administration are watching closely. Are, are you concerned that this could be gone in a year or two? I, I'm thinking how difficult it may be for veterans to trust something and to do something that might not be permanent. It is a very valid point. Um, but I honestly think right now in, in our world, we're holding on to anything that'll give us footing. And when it comes to veterans trying to get help, they're screaming at the top of their lungs sometimes. And this might be the way for them to help themselves when there was nobody listening before. Nathan, what do you say to that, that this is a, a pilot program? Yeah, I, I completely agree that it is a pilot, of course. That's not a secret. And it's really on us and community members and champions like Jeremy to get it in the hands. And then the VA is sponsoring an evaluation of this tool. So we have a high level of confidence that we are going to deliver on the results that we're hoping for, which is helping connect more veterans to veterans and support services and support well-being. And time will tell. But going back to the very problem, we know that unfortunately, and this isn't a secret, that veteran suicide is a, a major challenge in this country, and specifically here in Colorado. In 2019 alone, we lost 217 veterans to suicide. And unfortunately, veterans living in rural communities are at higher risk of dying by suicide. So something that we're really proud of is we made a tool specifically for rural communities that understands rural life in a world that is very metrocentric. And looking around OperationVeteransStrong.org, you find stories of veterans living their lives, being successful, um, working through problems, and these little snippets and these little stories. Jeremy, have you seen those stories make an impact, maybe with the veterans that you're showing this app to, that they can see that there are veterans around the country, maybe even their backyard, that are, are making it, that are that are doing all right? Hey, yeah, exactly. That's It's it's essential. Knowing that you're not alone is is the best part of, I guess, being a veteran, you're, you're always close by with another person that was willing to go and do what you did. Um, and I think it's essential that we also think that, and remember that it's, it's on us as individuals to also get this out and share it as a veteran service officer. I've got to do everything I can to make sure the outreach is meeting what my vets need as well. We, we, in, in some cases, don't even know what veteran service officers do or what they are. So it's it's very important that, especially now when times are tough, we have to focus hard on that. Jeremy, Nathan, thanks so much for being here. Thank you both. Thank you for allowing us to be here. 
Jeremy Kirkpatrick is a veteran service officer in Phillips County in northeast Colorado. Nathan Demers is with Grit Digital Health based in Denver. This mobile and web-based resource can be accessed right now at OperationVeteranStrong.org. When we come back on this Veterans Day, stories of World War II that won't be lost to the passage of time. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. COVID cases are increasing in Colorado, and children are a factor in the spread. Even if they have mild symptoms, they can pass it to adults at home. Young children are now eligible to get vaccinated against COVID-19, and parents have questions about what that means. Questions like, is the vaccine safe? Where can you get a shot? And will your school or district mandate the vaccine? Get answers to these and other frequently asked questions about the COVID vaccine for children at CPR.org. Every day, more than 200 World War II veterans pass away. That's according to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Fewer than 250,000 from that war are living today. With that in mind, let's listen to a 2017 conversation I had with Joe Hoberman of Loveland and Lemoyne Lee Anderson of Fort Collins. The pair were part of a group of Colorado World War II veterans awarded France's highest decoration, the National Order of the Legion of Honor, for their service in the war. When I visited Hoberman, the then 92-year-old had a thin, clear breathing tube attached to his nose, delivering constant puffs of air. I want to talk about September 1944. Okay. You arrived in Normandy. Yes. The D-Day assault was June 6th of that year. What was on your mind as you landed at Omaha Beach, uh, where just months before so many U.S. infantrymen had died? The anguish that those guys felt when they uh, landed, uh, some never made it to the beach. It just weighs on your mind. It's something you can never forget. I'm not sure I want to. I you don't, don't want to forget? No, I don't want to. No, no. I, 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 I want to still honor what those guys did. And uh, uh, if you could uh, open my bedroom window, you hear me praying for them every night. During that winter of December 1944, Hoberman fought in the Battle of the Bulge. It was a last-ditch attempt by Germany to split the Allied armies with a surprise attack in the mountains of northern France. It was one of the deadliest battles of the war. In 24 hours, the initiative changed hands, and the German army, which had put the word Blitzkrieg into all languages, unleashed its desperate offensive. We were in a little town called Ben Weir, uh, which is Alsace-Lorraine, north of Strasbourg. And we had to leave uh, because you could just see hordes of people coming. And so uh, this was not the place to put up a defensive front. So we had to leave there. And uh, two days later, they carried me to the hospital because I couldn't walk anymore. Cold and soaked through, Hoberman developed gangrene in his toes and was sent to a hospital away from the fighting. My question to the uh, doctor was, uh, what's your prognosis? He said, I'll let you know in two weeks. And uh, that's whether they start chopping off uh, little digits <laughs> or, or, or not, you know. And as it turned out, you know, that wasn't necessary. Uh, but uh, it, it just meant uh, inactivity for, for quite a while. What was life like when you got home? I would say it was very rewarding because I was uh, discharged, I think it was May 20th of 46. 
But uh, the uh, first week in June then, uh, I uh, started my first class at Butler University in Indianapolis on the GI Bill. And uh, that, to me, uh, occupied my time. It, it, it was a dream come true. And, uh, you know, I would say, you know, I, I hate a free ride, you know. And somebody said, well, hey, buddy, you earned it, you know. And you, you learn to accept that, that uh, this is one of the perks that you got. But you always feel about the guys that didn't make it home and women. We lost a lot of nurses in the field, in those field hospital things. Uh, an artillery shield is very indiscriminate. But there were still big challenges following the war. One of them. Wondering what I would do. Uh, I changed my major twice, and uh, I was a little unsettled, yes. Hoberman says it took him decades to truly get his bearings back. In 2014, he took an honor flight to Washington, D.C. It was a chance for veterans to see the World War II memorials there. Touring Arlington Cemetery, the rows and rows of soldiers' graves nearly overwhelmed him. A woman sitting next to him said, You have survivor's guilt. I had never thought about it. And that was a life changer. How so? I, I felt almost at ease with myself. Because it wasn't my fault that, that I made it. It was, uh, I, I guess, just God's wish. I don't know. Joe Hoberman speaking to me in 2017. Around the same time, I spoke with then 94-year-old Lemoyne Lee Anderson of Fort Collins. His first exposure to combat was on the beaches near Salerno, Italy in 1943. He says it was horrifying. No matter what training we had, uh, these were 18, 19-year-old kids uh, uh, with all the combat gear thrown into this uh, landing craft and jumping into the water up to your... uh, armpits, we just learned on the, on the move, so to speak. And uh, you learn very quickly, I might add. You have a, an objective, and yet you're trying to save your uh, butts. <laughs> and then we uh, proceeded through the Salerno area in Italy up into the mountains uh, below Naples. It was up there where I got wounded. What happened? What well, was it? Artillery barrages. What we would do, we would proceed in a uh, attack mode, and we would have an objective, a hill, a town. Then you'd reach a certain point where you couldn't move, so you'd dig in. That was the word. Dig in. It's time to dig in. And um, you would dig in the, the uh, soil, and it was rocky in the, in the mountains of Italy, so it was really a difficult uh, task, and we do this day after day after day. Uh, one of the nights, uh, the, we were in an area where there was an artillery barrage, and that's when, when I got uh, wounded, and I didn't even realize it. You know, in those days, it's not the uniforms that you see today in the military, but we had these heavy woolen coats that would go down to our knees, and our, everything was woolen trousers and woolen and and boots. Anyway, I felt this moisture in my armpit area. You know, that's kind of funny. Then I realized that, that I had shrapnel there, and uh, I could hear the uh, ominous sound during this was medic, medic. 
A number of men were hit, including Anderson, but he still helped fellow soldiers with injuries more debilitating than his. Ambulances took the wounded to a hospital in Naples. He says it was a welcome change from the chaos of war. Sheets and a mess hall with hot food, and even though you, everyone there was from minor to seriously injured, I still had the shirt from combat because they cut that off. And I said, there's something up here. And I had a little prayer book. And the corner was shattered right at the edge. And there was a little piece of shrapnel in there, <laughs> lodged. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a unnerving, to say the least. Anderson received two Purple Hearts and was briefly captured by German soldiers before being honorably discharged in 1945. But... He kept silent about the war for decades. So why recently, then, talk about it at all? Because people are asking me about it. (laughs) I've had six interviews in the last (laughs) two weeks. You spent decades not wanting to think about it, and, and now people are asking about it more. What stands out in your mind? What do you want to say to people when they say, can you please talk to us about this? Maybe I could answer this by answering another question. How did the war affect you? How did the military affect you? And my one word is profoundly. You know, I was 19 years old, 18 years old, and I'm 94 now, and there isn't a day since then, that my experience doesn't resonate with whatever I'm doing. And I think the military and and the war influenced my mindset in a way that it's kind of hard to explain. Then, 94-year-old Lemoyne Lee Anderson of Fort Collins in 2017. I also spoke with then 92-year-old Joe Hoberman of Loveland. We remember them and all veterans on this Veterans Day. Former Colorado Matters producer Stephanie Wolf helped gather these interviews. Thank you for joining us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Carousel, the chestnut tree.